<laughs> Good morning, everybody. My name's Mickey. I'm a real alcoholic. And I've been sober by the grace of God since February 5th of 1987. And for that, I'm truly grateful. My mother is pleased. My children are happy. And the state of Texas is at ease. So... <laughs> My home group is the Hearn Happy Hour Group in Hearn, Texas, and it's the best home group in the world, and I hope you feel that way about your home group. Amen. I'm from Bryan, Texas, where the men are men, the sheep run scared, and the women are cunning, baffling, and powerful. <laughs> I, uh, I hope to make it, I hope I don't have to take my boots off, you know, we always try, I remember Mary Reagan, I met her when I was six months sober, and she said, you will be asked to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she said, you are to dress like a lady, talk like a lady, and walk like a lady, and I will remember that forever, And uh, but I may have to pull my boot off, I recently had a knee replacement, total knee replacement, made a wimp out of me, and uh my home group is being the caring and sensitive folks that they are said, ha, ha, so why'd you have to have your knee replaced? I said, 23 years of praying, you know? <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here and I want to thank everyone that's responsible for me being here. I want to thank you so much. Uh, I had a wonderful fruit bouquet in my room. I, I had a t-shirt and gifts and uh, Trey has spoiled me rotten. He took me over to the Harley shop and let me do a little shopping over there. And and uh, he's been really, really wonderful for me this week, and actually for this past year. And if you're new, please get involved in service work. You know, this conference didn't happen overnight. It's been a long commitment with people who have made the commitment to do what they needed to do. And has it not been awesome? And have you not had a great time? And have the speakers not been awesome? Yes. When I first got sober, I was a student of Clancy's. I was a student of Chuck Chamberlain. I was a student of uh, Johnny H. and uh, Tom I. and Tom Brady Jr. And a lot of those heroes of mine that have gone, uh, some of them have gone on, and uh, some of them are becoming real old-timers now. And... And, you know, I'm so grateful for those. I'm so grateful for the tapes and the now CDs for the people that, that kept me focused and, and kept me energized. I, I remember I would be, I would listen to these tapes all the time and, and somebody said, you know, that AA stuff brainwashes you. Well, my brain needed washing. I, I'm telling you. And, uh, and I can get addicted to AA and I can end up finding a balance in it because, you know, I can detox from AA a heck of a lot easier and I can detox from that other stuff. And, you know, I have a good balance in my life today. I have a home group and I'm a firm believer in home group. And I have a, a sponsor and I sponsor a lot of people and I'm involved in service work. And I've carried the message of many, many years to the men and and women in white behind the walls in penitentiaries. And I believe in doing those things because I believe in being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't like to sit on the outside anymore. I, I've got to have my feet firmly on the ground. And some of those things are so important to being a member of this fellowship with the, and the responsibility that that carries. And I, I'm just thrilled and honored to be here. 
Uh, I didn't start drinking until I was 12. It's kind of late nowadays. <laughs> but there was a lot wrong with me long before I ever took that first drink. Um, I come from an alcoholic home. My father was a wife-beating, child-beating alcoholic. My mother's never had a drink in her life. And uh, my, uh, when I was about 10 years old, my mother gave my father the ultimatum. You either quit drinking or leave. And he left. And for all my years, uh, from 10 years old until I came into this fellowship, I thought my father left because he didn't love us. That he chose drinking. He chose the bottle over us. And what I know today and believe without a shadow of a doubt, having come to understand the disease of alcoholism, that my father left because he did love us. It was the only kind and loving thing he could do because he could not stop drinking. I don't know if he was ever exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if he ever had those things. Uh, I know my father died an awful, awful, painful um, death due to alcoholism. The last 24 hours of his life, they pumped 48 pints of blood in him as he bled out. And uh, awful. He was alone. And, you know, I, I wish I had known then what I know now. Um, I may have been able to be there for him, but I, I didn't understand the disease of alcoholism. Not until I found you. But there was a lot wrong with me. And I don't, some people say it's because I was born into this family of alcoholism. I don't know. I just know that as soon as I, I started lying, as soon as I could talk, I started stealing as soon as I could walk. And I was the child that lived on the razor's edge. I had to have something happening, and if something wasn't happening, I made it happen. I had to be the center of attention, and I wasn't good at getting positive attention, but I was real good at getting negative attention. And if you're a kid like me, negative attention's better than no attention. I was a rebel. I was a rebel with a cause. I was a rebel without a cause. I was a rebel because. And, uh, <laughs> I was just out there, you know. I'm a child of the 60s, and we rebelled against everything. And so I, I was uh, out there doing that. And I like fast things and fast people. I like motorcycles. I like cars. I, I still ride a motorcycle today. I will have to just brag a little bit that over the age of 50, I rode my Harley-Davidson from Bryan College Station, Texas, to Sturgis, South Dakota, and back. Not bad for an old broad. I turned 55 years of age last month. I told my daughter my life is half over. <laughs> but I like those fast things. I like fast cars, and the, the faster the better. And I, I mean, I just liked it. I loved I was the daredevil. I was a risk taker. And my sister, on the other hand, uh, was, the, was the opposite. She was the hero person in our family. She was the, the class favorite. She was the cheerleader. She made the straight A's. And on Friday night, while she was cheering the football team on, I was in the parking lot stealing hubcaps. And, and I don't know why I did those things. I just had this restlessness and this irritability and this discontentment, and I had to be doing something. And uh, so it wasn't a big deal. Walking down the streets in uh, small town Texas, I was living in Hearn, Texas at that time. Some of you may know where Hearn is. If you do, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't a big deal. My friends and I were walking down the street, and the neighbor had his garage door open. And in, in his garage were these cases of Long Neck Miller beer. They'd been sitting out there in the heat of the summer, uh, 
evidently for a long time, and there was dust and cobwebs on these cases of beer. So my friends and I snuck in his garage, stole some of this long neck Miller beer, and rushed down to her house to see what this was all about. We popped that top off there, and and it foamed up, and we sucked that foam off and drank enough of that till we reached that feeling of intoxication, instantly followed by nausea and vomiting. We didn't have the experience and the tools that we would get later on. We didn't know about putting your finger down your throat and puking so you could go back and drink some more. Didn't know about appropriately coating your stomach with some food before or a stick of butter before a night of drinking. And nor did we have my all-time favorite. We didn't know about putting one foot on the floor to keep the room from spinning. (laughs) That would come with time and dedication to this newfound way of life. And we woke up the next morning, and my friend was just, oh, we were hung over. I mean, we had that green complexion. Our eyes were bloodshot. And my friend looked at me and said, my God, Mickey, I'll never do that again. And she never did. For the rest of our years in junior high and high school, I never saw that girl tie one on. She saw the problem, made the correction, and didn't do it. And I was just as sick as she was at age 12, hungover, green complexion, and I said, you're absolutely right. I'm never going to do that again either. And I never did. I never drank hot Miller beer again. Something happened differently for me than it did for my friend, and I wouldn't find that out until 20 years later when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, that everyone that drinks doesn't feel the way that I felt. Clancy talked about it last night. Alcohol did something for me and to me that nothing had ever done. That brief period of intoxication was so elusive that for the next 20 years of my life, I would do whatever I could to experience the sense of ease and comfort that came at once by taking a few drinks. It seemed to make me okay in my own skin. Stop that madness and that anxiety, and it just made me all right. And that for the first time in my life, I felt okay. And that's all I ever wanted was to just be okay. I soon got a reputation as a very young girl for being able to drink more than my peer group. I thought I was just getting cool. Johnny H. from California tells me if I'd have gotten any cooler, I'd have froze to death, you know. And <laughs> so I, I thought I was just getting cool. I mean, I'm drinking more than these football players, and I'm driving them home. And I thought, you know, I was just I was handling my alcohol. I didn't know that people aren't supposed to handle a poison like alcohol. And then come the day when I would, would come to and not realize how I had gotten where I was having to go out and see if my car was there and if there was any damage done to it, coming to and trying to remember who I was with and what I had done. And what I couldn't remember, my friends would call and tell me I had done. And sometimes I would have to drink over the shame of the things I did while I was drinking. And it became this rat race. But, oh, my God, alcohol did something for me that nothing had ever done. Nothing had ever done. As the years would roll on, the day would come when I would wake up with that handshake. The day would come where I would hear music out of the toilet. The day would come where I would, where I had to drink in order to just survive. I never planned that. I never said when I was that 12-year-old kid, God, I can't wait to grow up and be an alcoholic. I wasn't going to be an alcoholic because I knew what my father was, and I would never be like him. I think I was far worse than my father ever could have been. About the age of 14, I found better living through chemistry. 
I started smoking those funny cigarettes, taking all kind of bizarre pills, those black market things where you take trips and never leave the room, paint a house without a ladder, took a lot of prescription pills. Now, my name was never on the prescription bottle, but I took a lot of prescription pills. And it was not uncommon to find me out in a cow pasture after a heavy rain. I would do anything. Because when I tell you I'm a real alcoholic, for me, my problem's not alcohol. It's not those other things that I do. Somebody referred to it as dry goods. I think that was Jack. (laughs) You know, it wasn't those other things that I was doing. For me, when I tell you I'm a real alcoholic, my problem is living life sober. I don't like sober very much. For me, sober is boring. It's kind of depressing, and I truly get restless, irritable, and discontent. And alcohol did something for me that nothing else ever did. I'm so grateful today for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that has given me the ability to look back at my life and make some sense out of everything. You know, I thought for years everything was just a waste of time, that I had wasted all those years, but, oh, those years are so valuable They're my greatest asset today. I just have to get them in perspective. I had to be able to put that new pair of glasses on and look at things differently. When I did my first fourth and fifth step with my sponsor, I was able to see that there was a lot of things that motivated me throughout my life. And one of them was the need to be loved and the need to love. As human beings, we all have that. I need to love and I need to be loved. But I didn't know how to get that. I didn't know how to do that. And what I did, as looking back at my life, is I traded all that for sex. I see a lot of that happening today. I see a lot of that in the rooms today. Wanting so desperately to just feel important and wanted and needed and loved. And trading all that for sex. But I didn't know any other way to get that. And at the age of 16, I found myself pregnant, not knowing what to do. Now, in this day and age, if you're 16 and pregnant, it's not a big deal. But in 1972, in small-town Texas, it was a big deal, a real big deal. I ended up going to Austin, Texas, where my sister was living by that time. I stayed with her, and I, I had an illegitimate child. A family came into my life that said, we will take this child and raise it as our own with a condition you never see this child again. And I made that deal. Because I I believed with all that I am that I did what was best for that child. But I also know that I did what was best for me, and it took me 20 years to be able to say that. So I came back to small-town Texas with a scarlet letter on my forehead. Everyone knew what had happened. And, you know, I I literally, at 16 years of age, had to have alcohol or some other chemical in my body that would allow me to walk out on the street and say, I don't care what you think. I don't care. But all anybody would have to do is look at me. I'm an alcoholic. I have that built-in sixth sense. I knew what they were thinking. (laughs) And knowing what other people are thinking has been one of my greatest defects of character most of my life. (laughs) 
has gotten me into a lot of trouble in a lot of situations just knowing what other people are thinking. I know today, and thank God for the steps, by looking back at that, is that I shamed myself to the pit of hell for what happened. No one had to say a thing. No one had to do anything. I did that to me. I made my first geographical change or cure uh, at the barely age 17. I somehow graduated high school. I'm a good test taker. I, I don't know any other way. Uh, and I was ready to get out of that town. If I could just get out of Hearn, Texas, I'll be okay. So I packed up my things. I was ready to leave. I went through my graduation ceremony, and 45 minutes after that, I am headed out. I'm going somewhere where no one knows me. No one knows my sordid past. I mean, I'm barely 17 and have a sordid past. I'm going where they don't know me, and I'll start over. I'll become successful. I'll be somebody, and one day I'll come back and show them all. And I had these good plans and these good ideas and these good ambitions, but I had no plan of action. I didn't know how to do what it was that I needed to do. And I moved 500 miles to a small town right outside of New Orleans, Louisiana, where they party 24-7. Not a good move for someone like me. I was in Louisiana two weeks before I ended up in jail. And I'm thinking, you know, God's punishing me. I am snake bit. If it, if it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And I've got all these rationalizations and excuses and, but I can't see that alcohol and those other things are doing for me in Louisiana what they did for me in Hearn, Texas. I can't see it because it was so precious to me. I had to hold on to the only thing that gave me any peace of mind. I had to hold on to it. And the consequences would have to become so great till I was willing to look at that. And a little bit of jail just wasn't enough. I didn't know what I was going to do. I'm 500 miles away from home, too ashamed to call home to tell my mom what had happened. And so I did the next best thing. You know, we hear in these meetings about the keen alcoholic mind, right? It's the only place you hear about it, right? <laughs> that keen alcoholic mind kicked in, and I did the next best thing. I ended up marrying the guy I got busted with. Well, that way he couldn't testify against me, and I couldn't testify against him. Made perfect sense, right? I mean, you have to have a reason to get married. And so we, we took in sick together and ended up resolving that stuff in court. And you can just guess what happened next. I got pregnant. I was so desperate to fill that void. I had had no tools to deal with that kind of loss and that kind of pain. I had no idea of what I needed to do. I just had this hole in my soul. And I know today that that's a God-sized hole. But I had to learn that and didn't know that. And I tried to fill that God-sized hole up with many, many things. Material possessions, other people, even my children. Desperate to fill that void. And I, I got pregnant. I, I have two children out of that marriage. Uh, my son, Micah, is 35, you're 35 years old. Wow. I am getting old. Um, He's 35 years old. He served in the military for 10 years and now works at the Brazos County Sheriff's Department. Uh, he's got three years clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Miracles have happened in my life. I'm telling you, uh, I got a phone call uh, 
from where he was staying at the time, and he had held off the sheriffs with a gun and, you know, what we do. And uh, when I went to family week, everybody was like, oh, I'm so ashamed. I'm like, man, I'm so happy, you know. I'm like, <laughs> held the sheriffs off, did what it is that we do. And, and you know, what had happened about five years pre- previous to that, um, I didn't get to go to treatment. I didn't have that opportunity, and I'll talk about that in a little while. But I had gone to the hill country and over there in Texas, and I had given a talk, and I had talked about that. And a man came up to me afterwards, and he gave me his business card, and he said, you know, Mickey, he said, you help a lot of people. And he said, you didn't get to go to treatment. He said, if you ever know anyone that needs to go, give me a call. How would I know that many years later that would be my son that needed to go to that treatment facility? And today he's sober by the grace of God in Alcoholics Anonymous three years. What a miracle. What a miracle. Oh, we just don't see them when they're happening sometimes. But I have that, that son, and uh, um, I have a daughter, Monica. She's 31 years of age and is absolutely the joy of my life. There's not anybody I'd rather hang out with than her, and we, we are stuck together like glue. She's awesome, and she doesn't have this deal. I, I don't know how. She's just one of those a normal people. I may have gotten the wrong kid at the hospital. I don't know. <laughs> But she's the kind of person that uh, she got stuck in the Dallas airport for 48 hours due to weather. And she would call me, and she was crying, she was upset. Then she'd call me, and she was angry, she was upset. And this went on for 48 hours. And when she got back, I said, well, well, Boo, did you go have a drink at the bar? And she said, you know, I never even thought about that. Said, please don't repeat that story. That's so shaming. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but by the grace of God, she doesn't have this deal. And, and I'm telling you, my children have been raised in Alcoholics Anonymous. And my daughter works a, works a really good program. She really does. But back then, I had these two children. And I wanted nothing more than to be a good mother to them. Wanted nothing more. I wanted to give them so much more than had been given to me. But I didn't know how, and I didn't know have a plan of action, and I'm an alcoholic, and I don't understand that. I moved back to Texas in 1980, and I like to say move because it sounds better than unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. <laughs> it was one of those spiritual moves in the middle of the night where you've got the U-Haul trailer, and you're just throwing everything in there. And you cross that state line and wipe the sweat off your brow, you know. You're never going back there ever, ever again. God's up there laughing because he knows there's a step number nine, you know. (laughs) But I came back to Texas, and by the time I got back to Texas, I had made a lot of really poor decisions. And one of those was under the influence of alcohol. One night, I let a friend put a needle in my arm. And for the next many years of my life, I was drinking alcoholically, daily, I was smoking those funny cigarettes, I was taking those bizarre pills, and I was putting needles in my arm and doing what I had to do to survive. I knew about one day at a time long before I came here, and it was about what's going on right now and what is it that I need to do. My marriage, of course, would fall apart, but I had these two children, and I want to talk about that for just a second. You know, my children have been the most important thing in my life. I love my children more than anything. 
If someone were to walk through this door right now and say, your life or your child, I don't think twice about the choice. Take my life and spare my child. But I couldn't quit doing what I was doing for my children. I'm the kind of alcoholic mother that goes to the store for a loaf of bread, and I don't come back for three days. Now, I don't mean to do that. That's not my intention. But I don't understand what's wrong with me. So I go to the store for a loaf of bread, and I come back, and I am tore down. I am tore down. And I've got these beautiful, blonde-haired, gold-eyed children cleaning their mother up. And they tell me things like, Mama, if you don't drink, you won't get sick. And I know that's the truth. I know that's the truth. And I know it's my solution. And so I muster up whatever energy I have left. And I say, you're absolutely right. Today I'm going to stay home with you because my soul screams I love you. And we're going to go to the park or we're going to watch a video or a movie or we're going to pop some popcorn. We'll play a game because I want so desperately to be there for you. But I'm an alcoholic and I don't understand what's wrong with me. And those children are so resilient. They believed me again and again and again. And why would they believe me? Because I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. But they begin to go off and they start to play and I start walking off that drunk. And my hand starts shaking and that knot starts. And Clancy talked about that so well, that spring that gets loaded. And then the thought comes. The thought comes that we know as obsession of the mind. And it's not that I go tearing through the house like a crazed maniac, although I've done that on some occasion. It's just this one thought that comes and says, you know, Mickey... If you take a drink, it'll quiet that hand, it'll calm that stomach, and you can go be a good mother to those children. And so I take that drink, and you know what happens next. I have to go to the store for a loaf of bread. And I left my children with people children don't need to be left with. My children heard things that no child should ever hear. They saw things that no child or human should ever see. And they experience tragic, unthinkable things because I'm an out, their mother's an alcoholic. I don't believe that there's anything stronger than a mother's love for her child except alcoholism. And it took me from my children on a regular basis. When I was six years sober, my daughter came to me because Alcoholics Anonymous had given her a mother she could come to. And she came to me with some news that would drop me to my knees. She had gotten in, she'd become a young woman, and she had gotten involved in an intimate relationship, and she was having problems with intimacy, and she needed to talk to her mom about that. Well, the reason she was having problems with intimacy was because when she was between the ages of five and eight years old, she would be repeatedly molested by the neighborhood 15-year-old boys while I was at the store getting a loaf of bread. How do you make amends for that? I'm sorry, just doesn't cut it. I thought I would absolutely die. Do it to me, I can take it, but not my precious children. What about the thoughts that I'm only hurting myself? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Thank God for the women in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon who 
embraced us and took us in and healed us from these things. I was able to get my daughter professional help, and today she walks with freedom, with the grace and dignity. Thank God for this program. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. The love that we know today is stronger than anything that will defeat us. Thank God I don't get what I deserve. Well, if you're paranoid and you think they're out to get you, they are. (laughs) And in 1986, they came and got me, and I was uh, charged with a first-degree felony, punishable by up to 99 years in the penitentiary. Now, I thought they were getting a little serious, you know. I mean, my God. After all, I'm just hanging out with my pals, my buddies, my compadres. In Texas, they call that organized crime. (laughs) I didn't think we were that organized, but, you know. And I'm one of those alcoholics, of course, you know, you bond out. And I'm one of those alcoholics that gets in trouble when you're in trouble, and then I'm back in jail. And I lost everything that I had. All those things that I thought it was important to be successful. I lost the house. I lost the cars. I lost my children. I lost everything sitting in that jail. You know, I'd always find God when I'd go to jail. When no one was looking, I'd get over there by my cot and kind of kneel down. And I'd say that prayer I'd said so many times before. God, please get me out of this one. I'll never do it again. And you mean that when, you, when you're saying that. You know you, you, you know you wouldn't lie to God, and God knows you're telling the truth. You just have to remember that God is really, really old, and sometimes it takes a while to get around to you. But he would eventually get around to you, and they'd call my name, and I'd leave that jail, and I'd go back on that street and do the, exactly the same thing that put me there. I left God locked up in Brazos County Jail. I didn't know how to take God with me out on the street. I didn't know how to turn my will and my life over to the care of of a new director, a new employer. I didn't absolutely had no skill to do that. And I was doomed to do what, what put me there in the first place. Johnny H. says it doesn't take a genius to get out of jail. It just takes time. And uh, that is true. While I was sitting in that jail, I heard, I sat there long enough to where I heard some of that jailhouse talk. And they said things like, you know, if you go to AA, it looks good when you go to court. Now, I'm sure we don't have any of that problem over here in this part of the country. <laughs> but down in Texas, it's pretty rampant. And so I listened to that long enough, and I was almost willing to go to any lengths to look good when I went to court. So right, uh, I was... Uh, let out on uh, bond a second time prior to going to trial by jury. You know, they say it's a jury of your peers, but I promise you there wasn't anybody there I'd have hung out with, you know. (laughs) But they let me out in time enough to do a few things, and one of those was I went to some AA meetings. And I went to the Bryan Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I walked in, and they did what we do. They stood up and they welcomed me with open arms and they said, come on in and have a seat. They said, you're the most important person at this meeting. And I thought, I know that. I mean, you know. (laughs) 
Because as I quickly scanned around the room, I saw this was a very, very conservative group. It seemed like everybody there had starch blue jeans and starch cowboy shirts on, and they all had a cowboy hat, it seemed to me. And they were all really, really old, you know, like in their 40s. Um, And I quickly scanned that room because I know how to do that really quickly. They did what they do at, at meetings of, with newcomers. They began to share a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And this one guy started talking, and he talked about how his drinking had gotten so bad that his wife left him. The pain of that was so great that he put the plug in the jug, went to AA, his wife has come back, and his life is wonderful. And I'm thinking to myself, geez Louise, one wife, one time? I mean, come on, dude, you know? I know some women that'll drink with you. Hang in there, you know? And there was, but he was talking about true love, and I was so far removed from any of those kinds of feelings. And then there was this little girl that jumped up in the back, and she was so excited. She had worked and long enough at this part-time minimum wage job where she had saved enough money to get this old used vehicle and everybody just applauded you know it was just the greatest thing and i'm thinking geez see me after the meeting chick i can get you a better deal than that (laughs) might not have a title but i can get you a better deal than that come on and i thought these simpletons were just too uh, just too simple and And, you know, I was a much more complicated person than that, and I really thought I was too bad for AA. Imagine that. And so I didn't stay. I didn't stay. But I went to court. I went to that trial by jury, and I told them I had gone to AA, and I did whatever I could. And I'm really not happy to tell you that I took the stand and swore to God to tell the truth, and the truth did not come out of my mouth. This jury came back. I mean, the prosecutor was asking for 60 years in the penitentiary, and the jury came back with a sentence that was far worse than anything you can do to somebody like me. You see, I was prepared to go to the penitentiary, not 60 years, but I was prepared to go to the penitentiary, do my little turnaround and come back out and run my own life because nobody tells me what to do. But they came back with this thing called giving me another chance called 10 years intense supervision probation. (laughs) What an order. I can't go through with that. (laughs) And I was so furious. I I was just furious. I was so sick. I was furious with that. How dare they do this to me? I'm going to have these people telling me what to do and when to pee in a cup and, and what I have to do to live my life for 10 years. I just couldn't believe it. Now, I'm at this time, I'm living in an abandoned house. I have no running water and no electricity. I've lost literally everything I have, including my children, and I'm worried about somebody telling me what to do. But that's how sick I was. I left the courtroom that day, and I did what I knew how to do. Make it go away one more day, and I'll worry about it tomorrow. But by God, just give me some relief today. The judge had given me a couple of months to get my act together before I started probation. He said, you will dot every I and cross every T or you're going to prison. And I knew the gig was up. I knew they had me because there was no way I was going to change. You see, I learned a lot of things by doing my fourth and fifth step. And one of those 
was some of the attitudes, some of the beliefs that I held that ran the show for me. And one of those was a very simple thing I had heard a long time ago. And it was, you made your bed, now lie in it. I knew what happened to people like me. I knew I was responsible responsible for being people like me. And I knew what happened. People like me end up in dumpsters. People like me end up shot and killed by other people like me. People like me get shot and killed by policemen. People like me get stuck in prison systems for very long periods of time. Nothing good happens to people like me. I made my bed and I lied in it. Because when you accept that, you do nothing to change. Nothing. And that had a hold of me real good. So I was going to live hard, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. You know, that was my philosophy. And uh, they had won. And I, I had surrendered and accepted where I was. It wasn't until many years later I'd come in this program that I had an epiphany. I realized that, yes, I had made my bed. Yes, I had lied in it. But with God's help, I could change the sheets. And what an idea. What an idea. But I didn't know that. I lost everything I had. And I, I tell you, I had one person that was left in my life. He was a young man. I like those young men. I thought if you could get them young enough, you could train them. And I would start that training process. I would give my experience, strength, and hope. And I would do what I had to do. And then, you know, they get an idea of their own, and then you got to get rid of them, right? <laughs> but you can't get rid of them until you have another prospect. Um, can't ever be without one, you know? And so I did that. And, and what I found out by doing a fourth and fifth step is that whatever this guy did that I had to get rid of him, the next one paid for it. And what I found out for that is that whatever I had to do to get rid of this one, the next one paid for both of those guys. And I abused a lot of men for a lot of years. Part of my amends is to leave you guys alone. I'm <laughs> but I like those young men, you know. And, and it, I didn't know anything about relationships when I got here. I had no idea. I knew about control and manipulation, but I didn't know anything about relationships. I didn't know anything about men. It wasn't until I came to AA that I began to find out. And it tells me real simply in the big book, they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. <laughs> I love you guys. I just love you to death. But I had this young man in my life. His name was Bud. He was 24 years old. And Bud came to me in this abandoned house one night with this Coleman lantern. And it was cold, really cold. And, and uh, he came to me one night and he made a grave error. He began to point out my failures as a mother, as a human being, as a citizen, as a daughter. And I don't know about you, but anytime anybody confronts me with the truth, I have to get you away from me whether that's with verbally, and I tell you, my tongue was like a switchblade, or whether it was physically where I had to attack you, or emotionally where I had to hit you below the belt. It didn't matter. It was whatever I had to do to get you away from me, and I attacked this young man brutally because I couldn't handle the truth. 
And he finally looked at me and he dropped his shoulders and he said, you know, Mickey, I can't live like this anymore. I'm leaving. And I said, well, you go ahead and leave, big boy, because I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. If everyone would just leave me alone, I'll be okay. And I believe that. I believe those lies. I believe so many lies. If you believe a lie, the truth will set you free. I walked outside. Uh, he left. I cussed him like a dog as he left. And I went outside a few hours later to find his solution to our problems. And that young man's body hung from a tree limb with a rope around his neck. And he had been dead for about five hours. I looked death in the face that day. I've seen dead people before. I've seen people shot. I've seen them stabbed. I've seen them OD. But this was different. I looked at death. And I knew I was next. I knew I was next. And when you have no God in your life and you're facing death, it's a really scary place to go. I left there and I started running. And I ran and I ran and I ran. And you know, a lot of people told me a lot of things about his death. They told me he was a coward and he just couldn't face life on life's terms. Well, I tell you what, I'm pretty brave and I'm pretty tough. I've got tattoos and scars to prove it, you know. But I couldn't get a tree and put a noose around my neck and jump. If I could, you'd have a different speaker here today. I don't believe his death was about being a coward. No more than I believe it's about being brave. What I believe it's about is being in so much pain that death seems like your only solution. And that's a pain that we understand here in Alcoholics Anonymous. That feeling of incomprehensible demoralization that's usually caused by incomprehensible demoralization. You know, I know that young man today sits at the right hand of God. I know that without a shadow of a doubt. God is either forgiving or he's not. Thank God I don't get what I deserve. Thank God. I ran and I ran and I ran. And when you try to outrun your own head, you have to go really, really fast. And uh, I'm telling you, it was so bad. I, I finally, the miracle for me happened. And it was called surrender. I pulled, off, I pulled off on the side of the road, and I had the gift of a tear. Because, you see, I'm a tough broad. I don't cry over anything. And in the gift of tear, one tear opened the floodgates of many years of uncried tears. And I broke down and bawled like a baby. For me, for everything, for uh, God, please, just please. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what I would pray to. Just something help me, please. After I was there, forever how long I was there, I sat up and looked around, and I had that deja vu feeling. I knew I had been there before, but I couldn't quite re pick, get all the resemblance in. And then I saw a man walking with a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous under his arm. I was outside that stupid AA meeting I had been to many months before, and it was a quarter to eight, and people were walking in. And I had no intention of going there at all what i believe today is when that surrender begins to happen god moves us where he wants us to be but he can't until that point 
I knew without a shadow of a doubt if I didn't get inside that meeting, I was going to die. I just somehow knew that. And I got out of that truck. I started walking up the sidewalk. I fell down and literally crawled into what I consider my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'd love to tell you that the men and women in that meeting of the Bryan group of Alcoholics Anonymous rushed to my side with a plate of donuts and a cup of coffee saying, let us help you up, you poor precious child of God. (laughs) But that's not what they did. They came and they looked down their long skinny noses at me and they said, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And have you had enough? My God, I had had enough. I had had enough. And I got somehow got into a seat, and I don't remember anything from many meetings after that other than the fact that I was in a meeting and I was hanging on to that chair, hanging on for dear life. I went cold turkey off everything, and I'm telling you, I got pretty alive. I remember talking to a guy many, much later, many years later, And he said the first time he saw me come in the meeting, he leaned over to the guy next to him and said, boy, things are fixing to pick up around here. (laughs) And they did. I somehow remembered I was supposed to go see this probation officer, so I went to see her. I reported to her, and I don't know what day I got sober, but I know the day I started probation. I have it on a piece of paper. And so February 5th of 1987 is the day I started probation and the day I claim as my sobriety date. Uh, I walked in to see my probation officer, and I'm telling you, I was lit up, uh, you know, uh, radioactive. And I, I walked in there, and she said, oh, my God. She said, do you think you can do this? And I said, no, I don't think I can. And she tried every way to get me into some kind of treatment facility, but there was nothing available at that time in my area. The only thing they had was Austin State Hospital, and there was a three-month waiting list, and I was dying today. When Alcoholics Anonymous says they can love you sober, by God, I'm living proof. I sat in these these ten chairs that felt like, and I hung on to that seat, and I shook uncontrollably. My hair fell out. My skin peeled. I would uncontrollably vomit on myself, and those people would come over, and they would clean me up, and they would pat me on the back and say, Honey, if you don't put any more of this poison in your body, this too shall pass, and you never have to go through this again. And I hung on from meeting to meeting with just, just please let that be true. Please let that be true. After about six weeks, that sickness started to pass. Those people had nourished me enough and gave me enough to keep me alive long enough till that sickness started to pass. And what I started, did then was I sat in the back of the room. And I started talking about it to the people around me. Now, as you can tell, I'm loud. I probably really don't need this uh, microphone. I started talking to the people around me how big and bad and tough I am. You want to see some of my tattoos? Let me show you some of my tattoos. There's somebody here that showed me their tattoo uh, one time after I said this. You know, I, I, I just say my body's a work of art. But I never had any tattoos put on my breast, and uh, there's a reason for that. As a young girl hanging out at the tattoo parlor, I heard the story of a young woman who had had a rosebud tattooed on her breast. And when she turned 70, it had become a long stem rose. (laughs) I don't care how drunk I got, I just couldn't get that out of my mind, you know. I started talking to the people around me and telling them about those big deals I made out there on the street. 
those narrow escapes from the law. And I didn't tell them about the times I got caught, but I talked about those narrow escapes from the law and how big and bad and tough I was out there. And finally, Charlie came to the back. And every group's got a Charlie. That guy with 15 years sober has an answer for everything. I found out later if he didn't know what the answer was, he'd simply say, it's in the book, you know. <laughs> I say that all the time now, you know. But Charlie came to the back and he said, Mickey, why don't you fix your coffee and come sit up front with us? And I thought, well, they kind of want to know what it's like out there on the street. I said, sure, Charlie. And so I went and I fixed my coffee and went up, up to the front and sat next to Charlie, who leaned over and firmly, gently said, sit here and shut up and listen. <laughs> Charlie probably saved my life. He probably saved my life. While I was out in the, there in the back trying to be so different, Charlie had me come up and sit up the front and listen, and I'll be forever grateful to that man. For the next three months, the only thing they let me do was read How It Works because there were no cuss words in How It Works. <laughs> I threw one in every now and then just to kind of liven that thing up, you know. I mean, it got boring quick. And so then what they did was they had me be the greeter at the door. Now, you had to really want to get sober to come through that door when I was greeter. <laughs> I don't look anything like I look today. Back then, I'm 5'10", I weighed about 115 pounds, I thought I was looking good. I hadn't been in the sun in seven years. I had that gray, pasty, death kind of complexion, you know. I was sunk in places you're not supposed to be sunk in. And I came walking in with these skin-tight blue jeans or these black leather pants tucked in these knee-high boots with a brass tip on the end because I was bad. <laughs> I wore these black t-shirts with the neck cut out and the sleeves cut out, because I'm hot. <laughs> I had a big black wallet in my back pocket with a dog chain that hung down to my knees and hooked up on my belt loop, because I got it going on. <laughs> had a big wad of keys over here on my hip. Made a lot of noise when I walked. You heard me long before you ever saw me. Now, I was living in an abandoned house. My truck started with a screwdriver, and I got a big wad of keys over here on my hip. I had this black leather jacket with this fringe that hung down. I wore this hat that I had pulled down over my eyes, and I had to wear my sunglasses in those meetings because the lights were just a little bit too bright. I did hear that we were sensitive alcoholics, right? <laughs> And I came in with a bad attitude and a filthy mouth, and all that was about keeping you away from me. Keeping you away, because I can't let you in. I don't know how. And so I kept everybody away. I was angry, and I know today it was because I was fearful. And a couple of things, you had to want to get sober to come through that door. I welcomed people rather harshly, but, you know... <laughs> One of the things that kept me coming back for a long time, there were a couple of things, but one of the things that kept me coming back was Al-Anon because I used to love to go terrorize those Al-Anon. <laughs> On Tuesday night and Friday night at the First Methodist Church, they had a closed AA meeting upstairs and an Al-Anon meeting. 
And I'd go up those stairs, and I'd be stomping up those stairs, swinging that chain, rattling those keys. I'd round the corner, and they'd scatter, you know? (laughs) It was a spiritual experience. I mean, lack of power was not my dilemma, you know? And I would walk in, they'd kind of scatter. I'd kind of hiss at them a little bit, throw a little spit their way, and say, come on, you want some of this? I don't think so, you know? I was big, I was bad, and I was tough, and I hated those Al-Anon people. Hated them. Couldn't stand them. Those Al-Anon women that went to that meeting, they were so color-coordinated, you know? (laughs) They had those little pantsuits or little skirts, and, you know, where the pants matched the little top, and they wore those little pumps, you know, were so cute. They had their little purse that matched their pumps. And they had their hair fixed, and they had makeup on them. I mean, they just made me sick, you know? Because they they seemed so mousy, and they looked, they looked just like I do now. (laughs) But I hated them. I hated them because I thought they were weak, and I, I didn't know what it was to be a woman. I had no clue. I had no clue, but those Al-Anon women have become so important in my life, and I treasure them and our friendships that we've had all these years. Thank God I don't get what I deserve. But I would go there, and that was one thing that kept me coming back, um, you know, to, was going to those meetings. And uh, I would come back in this truck and uh, drive around this truck. Now, when I got busted, they took everything I had, not one, not two, but three cars out of my driveway. But they left this truck because they didn't want this truck. I mean, <laughs> I got in this truck in a drug deal. I gave a guy half a gram of dope. He gave me the truck. I figured it out one day. That truck cost me $12.50, and I got ripped off. <laughs> it had been sunk in a tank of water long enough to where the entire floor had, had rusted out. I had to steal carpet to put in the floorboard to keep trash from the road from blowing up on me. The only place you could put your feet were on the pedals. It was the early 1970 model Dodge Ram that used to have power steering. <laughs> the headlights worked some of the time. Uh, you know, everything kind of worked some of the time. And and uh, I'd get it started and put it in reverse and it'd die. But I always thought it was so nice those guys at the AA meeting would stand out on the on the porch to make sure my truck got started. I found out later they were placing bets, but, you know, I mean, I thought they were being so nice. But, you know, those were some of the things that just kept me coming back. And that truck got me from one meeting to the next. And uh, I would go around these meetings, and I became a constant complainer. Constant complainer. Um, One other thing that kept me coming back was this cop. Because I would go to that closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this cop couldn't stay sober. It was great. I loved it. Every time he picked up a desired chip, I was like, yes, yes. Sometimes I just stayed sober at him, you know, just to summon. I'd kind of smile, and he hated me, and I hated him. We'd look across at each other, you know. So whatever it takes, whatever, if you're new, whatever reason you're going, just keep going, you know. But I would sit around these meetings and I would become a constant complainer. You know, I'm living in an abandoned house. I I don't have any running water. I've got this $12.50 truck. And some smarty would say something like, well, get a job, you know. 
And so uh, I, I went one time to a noon meeting, and they said, are there any announcements? I said, yes, I need a job. And before that, before that meeting was over, I had a job. And I went to work in a 120-degree sweatshop in a sink factory drilling holes in marble sinks on an assembly line. And uh, I, I'm telling you, I learned about a day's pay for a day's wage. I learned about punching a time clock. I learned about being responsible and doing what it was that I needed to do. And when I got my first paycheck, I went to my home group, and they passed that basket, and I put my first legal dollar in that paycheck. I got a standing ovation from my home group. <laughs> and they said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, since that time, I have been fully self-supporting through my own contributions. I, they started talking about, Charlie kept talking about, get a, get a sponsor, get a sponsor. So I'd look around the room, and I'd see that young guy with 30 days by the coffee pot. And I said, Charlie, I bet he could keep me sober tonight. <laughs> and Charlie said, women work with women around here, and men work with men. And he said, that's what a, a good suggestion, and you need to do that. But I hated women. I hated women. I, there was no way I was going to have a woman as a sponsor. And I was chronically complaining in this meeting one day, and I got up to leave, and this woman came up to me and said, Mickey, I want to tell you you're full of shit. And turned around and walked off. Well, I couldn't believe she was talking to the most important person at the meeting that way. And I went to tell her that when my mouth opened and a voice like mine came out and said, will you be my sponsor? <laughs> now, aren't we supposed to have somebody we can relate to, somebody that has been down the similar road? Linda Kay had been a whack in the Army. Not, no relation. We had nothing in common. Thank God. But Linda knew the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she knew this program. And thank God I don't get what I deserve. And she turned around and looked at me from the top of my head to the tip of my toes and square in the eye and said, I don't like you, but I'll help you because I have to stay sober. Well, la-ti-da, you know. <laughs> She said, do you have a big book? I said, no. She said, do you have any money? I said, no. She said, well, steal one. You can make amends later. So I did. <laughs> and Linda took me to the big book, and I had my stolen big book and her big book, and we went through there, and she began to teach me how to read the beautiful program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She pointed out to me what the problem was. The problem was is that... Uh, I'm powerless over alcohol. When I take that first drink and I'm powerless to not take it, that I don't stop and I don't know what's going to happen. And then my life had become unmanageable. And I had a little bit of trouble with my life being unmanageable. Now, because I obviously was unmanageable, I mean, I had been living in an abandoned house. I had, hadn't worked in years and years and years. And, and I had done things that um, citizens just don't do. But I would look around the room, and I would see people like that cop over there, and he still has a job, and he still has a wife, and he has two cars in his garage, and he hadn't lost anything. And the old-timers sat me down, and they said, you know, this first step says we. And i pick out how I was different. And he said, you know, Mickey, Charlie would tell me this. He said, you know, Mickey, if your life was over today, what would cease to exist is a sum total of your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. He said, your job, if you had one, uh, somebody else would take. Your money, if you had any, somebody else would get. 
He said, but the thing that we all have in common is the way we think, the way we feel, and we're doing things we don't want to do, and we're not doing the things we need to do. And you know what? I became just like that cop. The same kind of thinking. That thinking when you put your head on your pillow at night and you just can't shut it up. Or if you're able to fall asleep very shortly, it goes, you forgot to think about this, you know. <laughs> and I became, I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous through the teachings of the old timers in this program. My sponsor was one that was very big on doing the steps, and she was very big on doing step one, and then immediately doing step two, and then immediately doing step three. She told me the problem, was, the, the problem, and then she taught me what the solution was, that I had to come to believe in a power greater than myself that will restore me to some sane thinking. And then I had a decision to make in step three. I could either keep doing what I was doing and shut up, or I could try life on a spiritual basis. And she said, if you don't do these things, you're going to die. She didn't say I was going to feel bad. She didn't say I was going to drink again. She said, you're going to die. And I believed her then, and I believe her to this day. If I don't do these things, I'm going to die. So I turned my will and my life over to the care of God, kneeling down with my sponsor. And I decided to try to do this deal. And I was immediately instructed to do, write a four-step. And I wrote that four-step. During this period of time, I ended up getting a little one-room apartment uh, in the bad part of town. I would get out of my truck, and I would hold my breath until I got inside my house and closed the door because I was afraid they would be giving me a urine test at my probation meeting. And there was so much stuff going on around me that I was afraid to breathe the air outside. And uh, um, So I had this apartment, I had this little job, and I was working on my four-step. And my life changed from that day to this. I did that four step with my sponsor. I did my, uh, my fifth step with her and she had me go home for that first hour and carefully consider the first five proposals. And I did that. And during that time I had to go to the restroom and I went in and I turned the light on and I saw for the first time who was looking back. I saw Mickey as she really was selfish, self-centered, dishonest, disloyal, I mean, I saw me for the first time, and it was not a pretty picture. Not at all. The miracle happened for me in steps six and seven. It was like going over and flipping on a light switch. Because for the first time in my life, I knew what was wrong with me. And for the first time in my life, I knew with God's strength I could change. And I began to change. I began to learn how to be other-centered instead of self-centered. I learned how to be a giver instead of a taker. I learned how to tell the truth. I learned how to be honest. I started learning those things that I, I never knew. I, I had no idea. And my life changed. I had a new employer who wanted nothing but good for me, who wanted to love me the way I love my own children, and that there was nothing I could do that he would stop loving me. And I got to my eighth step and my ninth step. And, and, you know, there were a lot of amends. And I had to make those three columns of now, maybe, and later, you know, because there was a couple of people on there that I swore I'd never make amends to that I ended up making amends to. And so I began to make those amends. And some of the family stuff I wanted to make right, I, I needed to make right because I loved them. And all they wanted what was best for me. 
But I had a lot of amends to make to my community. I was a parasite in my community. I was a ravager and a taker, and I had to pay back what I had done. I thought for a long time I was going to have to leave my area to be sober because I had too many connections. I knew all this stuff. And it was the old-timers in AA that sat me down and said, you will look this community in the eye and you will pay back what you have done. If not, you'll be running the rest of your life. And thank God for that. So I began to make amends. I got involved with the H&I committees, and I started going into the prisons and the jails and the detention centers, and I started doing all these things. If someone needed to know, some agency needed to know about Alcoholics Anonymous, I would go, and I went to the Lions Clubs and the Kiwanis Clubs, and you name it, I would go. I would go to the university. I would do whatever I could, and I'm just doing this because I don't want to die. I don't want to die, and I'm trying to make things right. And after three and a half years, the judge called me back in his chambers. After being sentenced by a jury, the judge called me back in his chambers and said, I've kept up with you, kid. You're doing a good job. You're doing good things, and you are a changed person. You are different. And he said, I'm releasing you from the bondage of the state of Texas. And gave me an early discharge. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. My probation officer has been so influential in my life and still is to this day. She said, I want you to take this a step further. I want you to do some other things. And so I've been taught in here to do the paper, the footwork and leave the results up to God. And I did that. And in 1994, I received a full pardon from the governor of the state of Texas, restoring my full civil rights, giving me my rights back. You know? I couldn't believe it. I absolutely could not believe it. I was free. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I was free long before I got off paper, but I have been given an act of forgiveness by the state of Texas. What does all that mean? What that means for me is it makes me more useful for my God because the things that I do today I couldn't do if I hadn't gotten that pardon. I knew it had to be of God and for God. And so uh, I would find out. It would take a few years, but I would find out what that was. A pardon. I've served on a jury. Not only have I served on a jury, I was foreman of the jury. Because everybody was going, oh, God, jury duty. And I was going, jury duty! Yay! And I had to stand up and read the guilty verdict because this person was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And I wanted to scream out so bad, son, all you have to do is 12 simple things and your life can change. I used to sit where you were sitting. Of course, I didn't. I just got up and read the verdict. But, you know, I mean, I wanted to scream and I found out I like it better on this side of the bench than I do on that side. And as I looked around in that jury room and I looked around... I was sitting with a group of my peers. How do you get from there to here? There's only one way I know. is my God. Because today I do, to the best of my ability, live in God's world. Now, I had gone back to school again because of the influence of my probation officer. I went back to school and I worked hard. I had all these odd jobs and I was in school and I ended up with a few initials behind my name and went on and started working with this nonprofit organization and worked up to middle management. And I worked hard. I, nothing was given to me. I, I, I worked hard. I earned those paychecks. 
And uh, one day they came and they had major funding cuts across the state. And guess what? When you have major funding cuts, the first to go is middle management. And I was without a job. This was almost 10 years ago. I was without a job. First time I'd ever been without a job since I raised my hand in that noon meeting. And I I really didn't know what I was going to do. So I went home and I started saying those prayers and I knew God was going to take care of me. I have never even heard of anybody active in Alcoholics Anonymous that has starved to death. (laughs) You just don't go to a meeting and somebody say, oh, man, did you hear about old Joe? He just starved to death, you know? (laughs) It doesn't happen around here. It doesn't happen. And I knew I was going to be okay. I just knew I was going to be all right. So I go home and I'm sitting there and my phone rings and it's a familiar voice. And she says, I hear you're looking for a job. And I said, yes. And she said, well, why don't you come work for us? And I couldn't have gone to work for us if I hadn't gotten that pardon. And that familiar voice was my probation officer. And for the last nine years, I have been employed at Brazos County Adult Probation, where I was on probation. (laughs) I'm getting my money back, but I have to work for it. I'm in the computer and on the computer. And I am working with people that were just like me, that walked through that door of that probation office and sit down. And I start doing my spiel with them, and I do what I can to help people change their lives, you know. And uh, I believe I'm exactly where God wants me to be, doing exactly what God wants me to do. And they sit in that chair sometimes, and they say, but you don't understand. (laughs) You know, what a deal, what a deal. A lot of things have happened since I've been sober. I'd love to tell you that every day has been a holiday and every meal has been a banquet. But, of course, you know that's not true because this is a thing called life. When I was eight years sober, I was working at a – had started a new job and I was working with some new people. We started a bunch of new programs and I was really tired. I mean, I got so tired I'd come home at lunch and I'd have to lay down and take a nap. And I did everything I could to try to do some exercise. I increased my exercise activity and my vitamin regimen. And I I live across the street from a park, and I'd go walking and jogging around this park. And I'd get up the next morning, and I had lost 10 pounds. And I thought, man, that really works, you know? I mean, (laughs) I eventually ended up going to the doctor. And the doctor came back, and he said, Mickey, I hate to tell you this. He said, but you have terminal cancer. You've got eight months to a year to live, and you need to get your affairs in order. I couldn't believe this was happening to the most important person at the meeting. And I walked out and I looked up and I said, why me, God? And I heard my sponsor's voice say, why not you? Why not you? So I got busy and I surrendered to my cancer. And I went to MD Anderson Hospital. And after weeks and weeks of testing, a doctor came to me and he said, Mickey, you're not going to like what we're going to have to do. But I think I can save your life. And I tell you, by eight years sober, I had a life that I thought was worth saving. And I was willing to go to any lengths to do that. I'm not afraid to die, but I don't want to die. I want to see what's going to happen tomorrow. I want to go to those meetings and see, did Bill and Jane get back together? Did Henry get that job he was looking for? What about Sue? Is things working out okay with her kids? I don't want to miss anything. I want to be on the firing line of life. And so I looked at that doctor and I said, okay, doc. Let's go for it. And so we did. 
I went through massive amounts of chemo and radiation. I had an awful, horrible surgery. I did massive more amounts of chemo and radiation, lost every hair on my body, uh, found out I looked pretty cute, bald, had to beat the lesbians off with a stick, you know. I mean, <laughs> And I did all kinds of other things. I did, I went to Indian sweat lodges. I did hands-on healing. And you know, there was a gentleman who laid his hands on me with a group of people. Pray for my healing. Was that cop? Thank God I don't get what I deserve. I did hands-on healing. I did Reiki. I had went to prayer grams, prayer circles. I went to churches where people talked in tongues, fell out on the floor, waved snakes in the air. I mean, you name it, I did it. If you came by my house and said, I heard this will help you, I'm there. I burn sage. I have crystals. I have feathers. I have angels. I have you name it, I had it going on. I slept on beds of magnets. I did you name it, I did it. And people say, well, do you think all that stuff works? Of course it works. I'm out of, I don't have cancer anymore. What a miracle that is. What a miracle that is. Because, you know, these people who came by and, say, and they would ask me, they said, well, do you believe that stuff works? Of course it does because they believe it. And whatever you believe has power. Pay attention to what you believe. Pay attention. It has power, and I, I tell you what, I, I'm so grateful. I had a horrible, horrible cancer. It was awful. I went to my doctor one day, and I said, Doc, I know why I have cancer. He said, no, no, we really don't. It's probably genetic. You're way too young. I was 38 years old when I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. My doctor came to me, and he begins, I said, I know why I've got this cancer, Doc. And he said, no, we really don't. I said, yes, we do. He said, okay, why? I said, from so many years of men blowing smoke up my <laughs> Well, we got to know why, don't we? Made perfect sense to me. You know, there was a young man that came, a good friend of mine came by my house one day, and I know I'm running over, but there's this young man that came by my house one day, and he said, Mickey, are you angry with God? I said, why would I be angry with God? He said, you've got this horrible cancer. You're having to do this ungodly stuff, and you might die. Are you angry with God? I was so grateful I had done the work. I was so grateful I had gotten right with her in a relationship with God. That I no longer had some God on some throne somewhere saying, you know, Mickey looks like she's doing okay. Let's flick a little cancer on her and see how she handles that. Because, you know, if I still had that God in my life, then God is my problem. And God can't be my problem and my solution at the same time. You know, we're all going to die. It's not because God's mad. It's because we're human beings. And, you know, I, I, I surrender to that and I surrender to my God. And I also surrender to the fact that if I had to leave you, I was going to leave you a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous because this is the greatest honor I can achieve in any life. My greatest honor to be a member with you good people. Thank God I don't get what I deserve. And my God wants me to have everything. He wants me to have the best of everything. Now I have been so blessed. So blessed. How could I ask for any more? I mean it feels selfish to ask for more. And this program kind of sets you up for complacency. 
Because how can you expect any more? But keep doing the work and keep turning the pages because our God has things in store for you. You have no idea what's coming down the road. And my life and my experience is just a small element of many other good things that are going to happen to many people. Just keep turning the page and doing the work, helping others and doing the work. And I tell you what, I have been free, I have been loved, and I have been rewarded and gifted in ways beyond my wildest dreams. I get to travel all over the place. I've gone many places and and talked at conferences, and I've met people. I do that both professionally and in AA, and I've met a ton of people along the way. A lot of them I get emails from. I Facebook some. I do all those kinds of things. And I came home one evening, and I had an email from a young girl that lives in Sugarland, Texas, about 90 miles from where I live. And uh, her name was Kimberly. And Kimberly and I emailed back and forth with each other. And then in a few weeks, my daughter and I, my daughter Monica and I, went to uh, Sugarland to meet Kimberly. Kimberly is the daughter I gave up for adoption in 1972. Thank God I don't get what I deserve. Know and trust your God wants your heart's desires. But he will do it in his time and when the time is right. I've had such a wonderful weekend with you guys. You have just been awesome. You know, I'm probably not what I should be. And I'm probably not what I could be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Thank you for having me.